Welcome to another episode of the On The Way podcast, a podcast that explores a deep, compassionate, non-dualistic approach to faith. Uh, my name is Dom Fay, and uh, joining me, as uh, she often does, is Reverend Sue Wilton. Hello, Sue. Hi, Dom. It's good to be back. Uh, our first guest today is one of the most fascinating men I've come across, and I could be described in many different ways. Uh, teacher, author, activist, and community builder would just be a few uh, potentially apt titles. Uh, Dave Andrews, welcome to the podcast. How do you introduce yourself? My name's Dave, I'm married to Ange, and I have two daughters and four grandchildren. Well, that's as good an introduction as any then. Um, and our other guest is a close ally of Dave's in travelling the journey towards interfaith harmony. She's also a woman of many descriptions, uh, academic, humanitarian, and recently also a Queensland finalist for Australian of the Year, uh, I believe. Dr. Nora Amath, uh, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. Now, uh, we are discussing interfaith harmony on the podcast today, which I know is a topic close to the hearts of everybody in the room. You know, and I think societally at the moment, it does feel like a very timely topic when people are firmly entrenched in whatever camps they are in and, and opposing all others. Um, I, I thought a good place to start Dave and Nora would be to just hear your own coming to faith stories. Um, might start with you, Nora, I guess. Your, your faith origin story and how you came to, to be involved in interfaith work. Okay. Um, I have, okay, I guess in terms of my own faith journey, I've had, I think, quite a common faith journey where um, as a teenager I questioned everything about faith, um, specifically because I come from a very devout practicing Muslim family. My uh, father is an imam or a religious leader. My mother is um, also a religious scholar from a long line of religious scholarship from both sides of the family. And growing up Muslim, um, I did all the you know devout practices and rituals and not really understanding why I did. And so as a teenager growing up in the United States, I was born in Vietnam, um, a refugee um, to the United States. Um, as a teenager growing up in the United States and being in quite a multi-faith community, um, I had Hindu, Sikh uh, friends. I had, you know, my best friend was Catholic. Um, I had some Jewish friends and I wanted to know why I was Muslim. Was I Muslim because my parents were Muslim or is this something that I wanted for myself? So at the age of 15, I basically set aside, I guess, my, um, my hold on who I was as a Muslim, and I wanted to be able to explore other faiths. And so that's exactly what I did. I read up on, on other faiths. Um, it would be easier today because we have the internet, but back then I actually had to go to the library. I actually had to go into people's homes and have a conversation with them about what their faith means to them, how it informs their lives. I, My best friend, Christine, invited me to Mass with her, so I went to Mass a number of times. Um, but being the early academic that I was, even at the age of 15 and quite philosophical, I w was systematic in it. So yes, I explored other faith and wherever it took me, but I also had a list of questions that I wanted answered uh, from all the different faiths that I was exploring, including Islam. So I was actually exploring Islam for myself. And this was a two-year journey, um, two-year journey. My parents knew what was happening because they could see the Bible. I still have that Bible with me. Um, you know, they can see um, just all the different scriptures from all the different faiths. They could see it there, and they just let me be. There was never a question as to what are you doing, you know? Um, and I'm very grateful for that because I think I probably would have rebelled any other way um, and maybe not be a Muslim today. But I came back to my faith, just being able to reread the Quran on, I guess, my own terms, but also in terms of the early scholarship, which um, I, I wasn't doing, um, you know, before. And so I came back to my faith at the age of 17, um, decided that, um, so that was something impo very important for me. At the, after I graduated from high school in the United States, I decided that I wanted to explore more of my faith, what that meant, because I now had this energy and this enthusiasm for this faith that I embraced on my own terms. And so I applied for the International Islamic University in Malaysia, um, went and studied um, Asian linguistics, um, uh, linguistics and, and literature, as well as Islamic studies. And there got even, you know, renewed sense uh, of what it means to be a surrenderer, uh, what it means to surrender to God, what it means to be of service and, and contribute to society. This is 
the four years of my Islamic education at the International Islamic University has really set me up for who I am um, today. Um, I met my husband um, in Malaysia, and we, uh, after you know, we finished our university studies in Malaysia. I followed him here to his home state, home city, literally, and uh, arrived here in 1999 with our six-week-old child. Um, we were living with my in-laws at that time as, you know, freshly graduated students. We embarked on our master's degree at that time and had our second child and decided that it was time to probably move out on our own. Couldn't stay with the in-laws um, any, you know, any longer. And uh, while we were looking for a house, we decided that, you know, for what we wanted, we might you know, actually build a house. And we found a beautiful uh, block of land in a um, in a state in the Redlands in Capalaba, um, and uh, that was that was really it was just one of the most beautiful places. We had bushland all around. It was called Koala State, so we had koalas, you know, um, in the gum trees in our backyard. And but during that building process, because it was a new estate. Um, our neighbors were building at the same time, and so we would come, uh, you know, to visit the the block, the block of land on our new house construction. And we'd do this every afternoon, and they would do the same, and we got to know them really well. Towards the end of the build, it was about, uh, you know, March, really, March 2001. Towards the end of the build, we, you know, said to each other, okay, it's probably time to have a discussion about the fences, what type of fences we want. We wanted, was it going to be wooden pelling? Was it going to be color bond? Whose roof was it going to match? Because we all had different tile roofs at that time. And my neighbor, Cheryl, um, we had two young children. She had three, but one, Sean, was the youngest. Um, our neighbor at the back had three young boys. And she just looked around and watched the kids run around, playing you know, around from block to block, yard to yard. And she said, wouldn't it be great if we just allowed them to play as they're playing now? If, they, if we didn't erect any fences um, and that we still would be able to keep an eye on the children, but just let them be as children. So we did exactly that. We moved in April 2001 and we didn't erect any fences. Fast forward to September 11th, um, 2001. I think we all remember exactly where we were that day. In our case, I guess it was September 12th, um, 2001 here in Australia. And we had turned on the television, um, as we normally do, and I immediately remember the images that I saw, the two towers, the plane. Um, you remember, it takes you back. Those, and those images are really seared in your memory because that was quite a pivotal day for me and for many um, others who lived through that time. And I called my husband immediately, and I said, honey, look, look what's happening. And he watched. We were both quite shocked by it all. I don't think we said much. And all I then I turned to him and I said, "The fences are going to go up." That was my immediate re thought to it. Um, the shock of it, the, the the horrific, you know, tragedy that was happening. And I was mourning, but at the same time, I was really scared. Um, and especially with my neighbors, for the five months of deep friendship that we had. I didn't know if that would be able to withstand the horror that we were seeing on our television screen. And that was replayed over and over. So there was no way of escaping that. And so we waited for the fences to go up. We certainly weren't going to broach you know, the subject with our neighbors. Um, and two weeks passed, and I said, maybe it'll finally dawn on them that not only are we devout Muslim, because I wear the headscarf, I, you know, we pray five times a day, we, we, um, we fast during the month of Ramadan, we give charity, all the essentials of what it means to be a Muslim. But our eldest son's name is Osama. So every day it'd be Osama, you know, come out for dinner, Osama, where are you? So not only were we devout Muslims, but we, we had a son named, uh, or, you know, with the same name as the most wanted and hated man in history at that time. And I thought, it's finally when the shock of it, you know, uh, all, you know, sinks in and it dawns on them that 
we're devout Muslim and our son's name is Osama, the, the subject offenses will be, you know, brought up. Whether it's just because, you know, they need more privacy, it, it won't be because of bigotry, obviously, because we, we knew them as neighbors, we knew them as people, and the kindred spirit that we built of responsibility and care and compassion and love that we had for one another. But I honestly didn't know if that was able to withstand what was happening at that time. In fact, the fences never went up. So it's a good story. The fences never went up. Bob, Cheryl, Peter, Philippa, um, it, it didn't matter to them that we were devout Muslims. It didn't matter to us that they were Anglican and uh, Greek Orthodox and, and um, Catholics. What mattered was that we cared deeply for one another. And they were my greatest supporters after 9-11. Um, they were my greatest supporters against bigotry um, from their own family members who said, are you sure you don't want those fences up? And, you know, are you sure you feel safe, you know, with Noor and Halim um, next to you um, against their, co- even, you know, bigotry, you know, felt by um, or stated by their their colleagues at work who knew they had Muslim neighbors, even some of the neighbors on the other side, you know, of the other streets. Um, so they felt it, and yet they were like, we wouldn't have any other neighbors. They're, you know, a lovely young couple, and, you know, we had barbecues together, and, you know, we celebrated Christmas mornings together, and it was because we didn't have any fences. We were able to to really have this intentional community that defied, I think, all the hysteria, frenzy, and hate out there. Mm. I was so moved by that, absolutely moved by that, that I thought if that's all it takes to break down some of the hate out there and allay some of those fears um, is to engage with the Muslim. Because I actually saw it for myself, what was happening with my neighbors and, and my relationship with them, that I would now embark, I would go out there. I mean, I have a degree in Islamic studies and I wasn't really utilizing it. And I um, was doing a master's in applied linguistics at that time, but I wasn't really utilizing my Islamic uh, studies degree outside of the Muslim community. And I was myself pretty disgusted by the representation of Islam Muslims that I saw on the television. And I knew this didn't represent me, my family, my friends, many and the majority of Muslims um, around the world, not just in Australia and Brisbane, but around the world. So it was, I needed to go out there and, and be able to share my story of how Islam informs my life and you know the 99% of Muslims around the world. And I did exactly that. So I sent out letters of introduction to all the different churches, synagogues, temples, schools, community halls, sporting clubs, you name it. It was it was sent out to everyone. I thought I would do this, you know. I um, went on to maternity leave uh, with my third child at that time and decided that I would have the time and space to do that. And um, often the reception was great because it was inquisitive thank you for being able to share your story the only sources of you know information we have about Islam was through you know snippets and in, in um, uh, uh, through the papers or through our news channel but it's always just one side it's always somebody talking about Islam or about Islam or about a Muslim but it's never really the Muslim narrative that's actually being shared and owned and so I but that was great, and that kept me going. But there were other times when it was really ugly, when um, the bigotry and the hatred and the fear was stronger than anything that I could say or penetrate. Nothing I said was heard. Um, there were some violent, um, aggressive, you know, um, arguing. Never, and I hope not from my side, but definitely from from the questioner, um, and I even use the term questioner in, in brackets because they weren't there for a response, they just wanted to be heard. And often, more often than not, it, hap- it occurred in churches. And so after five years of doing that, from 2001 to about 2000, late 2005 and six, I um, was working on a project with Brisbane City Council on doing exactly this. They wanted more, you know, um, conversations um, in terms of Muslims in, in the community organizations. And a few weeks before that, it was it got really, really ugly at a neighborhood um, center. And I said to the community developers, um, 
who I had been working on this project with, and I said to her, I don't think I can do it anymore. Um, there's only so much, you know, hate and, and, and um, that one person can deal with. Um, and she convinced me, and she said to me, um, I think we've been approaching this all wrong. You've been doing this on your own for five years and, and uh, with no support except from somebody like her, but not an interfaith. There was an interfaith dialogue as such. Um, there was a conversation, yes, but sometimes the conversation became aggressive and there wasn't anybody to support me. And she said, I want you to meet a good Christian friend of mine. I've heard great things about him. He's a very devout Christian, uh, and I think you two would be fantastic together. And immediately when she said devout Christian, I think I started getting really nervous about that. I think I had my guard up and all walls, and I said, absolutely not. It's <laughs> like, how could you suggest that? Because so, um, so What was yeah. your concept of devout Christian? Very hateful, very yes, oppressive? Very, very much so. Very, um, they were there because many of the... the the negative um, episodes that I had or incidents I had were in churches. They came with a ready list of questions, um, and it was they. It was a script. They didn't deviate from that. Whatever I said, they had a you know a counter to. So it was well prepared. Um, which look, I understand that you know there are um, you know things within the um, you know within Islam that should be questioned and that we need to have a conversation about. But it wasn't the the manner in which, you know, the question was being asked. It was more or less, you know, this is what I believe Islam is from a Christian perspective and not willing to hear how that informs my life. And then towards the end, I would be invited to a Bible study circle. I would be given, you know, some scriptural, you know, leaflets and, and some booklets and a Bible. And, you know, and told that the only way for me to be saved was through Jesus. And, you know, because I was a person of faith, I understood how you know, how important faith this is in one's life, but that I was um, on the wrong path and um, that I needed to repent and, and follow Jesus. And I would counter and say, I do follow Jesus as a Muslim, and that is another conversation altogether. But for me, that was a devout, devout Christian, somebody who was just wanting to put down my own faith so that they're able then to convert me, that it was just a, an agenda, um, that there wasn't going to be a true conversation, a true dialogue. So I didn't want to meet Dave Andrews at all. It's quite interesting at the moment because I, I think this is a good point to bring up an anecdote, Dave, that I heard you tell on a Radio National interview uh, some years ago where you mentioned when you were younger you met somebody on the street who you'd been in class with who told you that you were the reason they didn't believe in God because you had tried to convert them instead of care for them, which I guess was the, the context you came out of. Um, so what Nora's describing is something I guess you in your younger years could absolutely understand. It probably was who you were. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, yeah. I grew up within a very devout Christian home. My father was a pastor in a Baptist church and... Um, Unlike Nora, I never rebelled against my tradition. Uh, but um, I grew up within that tradition and as I grew older, uh, made it my own. And so I was very committed as a Christian from the age of three. Um, right through primary school and secondary school, I used to hold prayer meetings at school. We used to... Uh, look at ways to protect students who were who were being bullied. Um, we would, I would um, read the scriptures, particularly the gospels, and um, and try to practice uh, the uh, uh, the teachings of of Jesus. And um, I was really committed to following that that path. Um, uh, as part of that, I would share my faith with people at, at school um, very passionately, but probably you could say you'd give me 100% for uh, sincerity, but probably 0% for sensitivity. And so when I was in town one day, I met this guy uh, who I'd been in class with, and um, he, um, I was talking to him and he said... Uh, you're the reason I don't believe in any of this because all you did was try to convert me. You never cared for me. And that was a profound moment for me. 
um, because uh, growing up within an evangelical Christian tradition, we celebrated that um, the gospel was, was that God was love and that uh, we needed to communicate um, the good news that God was love. And I had to face the fact that, that people in my class didn't experience me as good news, they experienced me as bad news. Mm. Because instead of expressing God's love as uh, compassion, I expressed it as um, uh, uh, coercion um, to get them to agree with my view. And that only became worse uh, when I, I studied apologetics. And when I was studying apologetics as a young man, um, probably the most influential um, evangelical apologist was Francis Schaeffer, who taught presuppositional apologetics. And that whole approach was to critically engage other people's religions, uh, find the flaws in them, and then crack open the fault lines within those traditions uh, to expose the contradictions, and then um, to offer Christianity as a what he called a true truth alternative to the false religious claims of other religions. And so I was actually trained within that tradition and actually went to India with that mindset, um, all the time being haunted by the story of my classmate who who told me that um, he was the reason that I didn't that he didn't believe the stuff because um, I hadn't communicated compassion. I'd only um, I'd, um, ex exactly the opposite of it. And so um, it was in India as I engaged people of other faith traditions and encountered uh, something of God within them. that was undeniable that I began to critically reflect on my own arrogance, uh, my own dogmatism, um, my own aggression, and I had to repent. Uh, I had to acknowledge that as a follower of Jesus, um, that I was relating to people in a way that was exactly the opposite of the way Jesus said I should relate to others. Um, rather than find faults in other religions, Jesus said, why don't you take the log out of your own eye before you try and take the speck out of somebody else's? And so I had to um, make a decision to engage people of other faith traditions um, very differently. Um, rather than look um, for what was bad in other traditions, I had to look for what was good. And as uh, rather than um, emphasise what was bad in other people's traditions, I had to reflect on what was bad within my own tradition. And, um, and so that was a process of conversion that I went through. And um, in fact, when I met uh, Nora, um, we had a conversation about conversion because uh, she was really nervous that I would be trying to convert her to Christianity. And we, as we talked, we realised that we both believed conversion was important, but not conversion from one religion to another, but a deep conversion to the mercy and grace of God that both our religious traditions celebrate. And that that ultimately conversion is a work of God. Not, and when we try to do that, we manipulate and exploit people. And so I assured Nora that, in, that if we were going to work together, my hope is that we would help each other become more fully converted to the mercy and grace of God in our lives. But I would not be seeking to convert her uh, to become a Christian. And I would hope she was be seeking not to convert me to become a Muslim. But that as a Muslim and Christian together, that we would... Um, we would be more open um, to that kind of um, uh, spirituality that was reflected within our traditions mm. and that we'd help each one another become um, more faithfully Christian and Muslim together. In fact, I can remember one of the, uh, the interfaith uh, events that Nora and I went to. Um, uh, uh, they, they, the minister said, so, Nora, what do you, what do you like about working with Dave? And this was at said, a Pentecostal church, was it? Was that the one <coughs> that church, I was yeah. really nervous to go to? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the senior pastor said, so what, why do you like working with Dave? And she said, because um, oh, he doesn't want me to become a Christian. He just wants to make me a better Muslim. <laughs> 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 and um, uh, you can imagine how they heard that. <laughs> uh, um, but the, that's the truth. The truth is that 
uh, we have both sought to help each other become more faithfully committed to God as we know God within our respective religious traditions. I think that, that's fabulous. I, I love some of these stories and I've always loved the fact that you have said, Dave and Nora, you know, that, that Dave, Nora's helping you to be a better Christian and Nora says that Dave's helping her to be a better Muslim because, you know, it, it is so far removed. I actually went to Dave's father's church. That was some of my history and I've known Dave on and off for, I think, 28 years now, mm. I think. And, and I had a similar experience of having to... Um, Repent of the arrogance of have to recognizing manipulation for what it is, and actually and and picking up on the tension when you actually read particularly the Gospels, the tension that was inherent when when what Jesus was saying was not actually fitting with what I was believing, and and the sense of of liberating freedom that you're describing in this relationship of recognizing that that the nature of God is diversity, you know, even then when we think about the Trinity, that's it's it's actually saying unity and diversity, mm -hmm. and yet we can go so far far and, and down the road of, of, of believing that we are hanging on to the truth. And, and I think that sense that you're describing of, of being reconverted all the time is, is so true for all of us. Uh, Dave, I remember when I interviewed you at a, at a church well, probably about a year ago now, um, you mentioned that the, the faith system you grew up in, which I imagine was somewhat similar to yours, Nora, in some elements and, and even people of no faith, is one that defines how right it is by how wrong all the others are. Um, and, and I guess that means conversion is the only metric that works within a right and wrong scale. How did you come to escape the, the we're right, they're wrong, uh, I guess, juxtaposition? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Nora and I have actually talked about this, and you're right. We've both grown up within traditions that have seen uh, people of our religion as right and the people of other religions as wrong. Mm. And that we will be saved and they will be damned. And um, both Nora and I have, conf have engaged with other people of other traditions and realised as we've engaged them that, hey, um, these people aren't as bad as we've been taught. <laughs> Actually, there's some good people in these other traditions and religions. And maybe they're not just good, they're actually godly. And they have something in them which is of God. So that we've begun to realise that, that both of us come within traditions where the propaganda is that we have a monopoly on God. Mm. And we have a monopoly on God's truth. And yet when we've engaged people of other traditions and religions, we real, we've come to realise that God is bigger than our religion. And that God's truth, mm. sorry, all truth is God's truth, regardless of who speaks that, regardless of what religion they come from, whether they come from um, other religions or no religions. And we need to be uh, humble and um, vulnerable and open to that which is God's truth, wherever we may find it. We may find it within our own tradition and we should be open to that, but we need to find it in other people's traditions uh, and we need to be open to that too. Can I also comment on that? Because... Um for me, that's probably one of the most profound um, parts of my journey within this interface space. Um, I, coming from such a, a devout Muslim family, we read the Quran from you know cover to cover, you know, and and that was something within our family we celebrated, you know, during the summer holidays, you know, three uh, month summer holidays. As children, we you know we sort of race against one another to see who'd finish the Quran, the, you know, the first. Um, How long it would take you to read it? Three months. Yeah. <laughs> three yeah. months. I yeah. mean, if, if you could do it within one month, which we do within the month of Ramadan, we're able to read the whole Quran from one month. But obviously to just read it, but reading it without reflecting on it. And that's the difference, I think, in terms of age, you know, maturity. And so I've read, you know, over and over, the verses about diversity within Islam, pluralism within Islam, but I never got it. So it's not like it wasn't there, I just never reflected on it. And it was really in conversation with you, in conversation with the other um, faith members that we would meet along, you know, the, these um, 10 years that we, we've been working together, that I started reflecting on it, going, it was there, but I just never really understood the significance of it. 
And so meeting somebody like Dave, meeting our friend, you know, Ranjit and his sister Kim and Jatinder from Sikh community, push, whichever community, uh, religious community we worked with and collaborated with, I'd go back to the verses that, uh, that God says in the Quran about the, you know, we've made you into nations and tribes that you may know one another. And the word, the Arabic word for know within this verse is kalmatrif, which is not a superficial getting to know, hello, how are you? But it's actually a very deeper, intimate, you know, uh, relationship that you deeply uh, engage with one another. Um, and then there are other verses about, you know, the fact that, you know, they're different. Uh, God has made you into uh, given given you different languages and colors, you know, and that's all part of God's wisdom that is actually better for us. There are other verses in, in the Quran that talks about, you know, whether they, um, you know, believe that whether they're Christian, Jews, Sabaeen, and it actually mentions this within the Quran that they will have their reward with God. Now, I know all these verses, and yet growing up, I always thought, I'm right, you're wrong, even though the Quran tells me something, very, but I just reflect on it. And it was in, in terms of my your very deep personal engagement and you actually say can i actually wholeheartedly believe in myself within my heart and every being that he's going to be punished because he's not muslim (laughs) that he in this afterlife that that is what is going to you know and i mean this is what i how i differentiate him in this world and that i will actually see my other friends as being punished um or being sinful and yet I see such godly people. Um, and that, for me, has just been life-changing mm-hmm. because now I can actually, and I know it's all there, but again, it just didn't penetrate. And I think that's what's really important for us is that in that conversation, now we go back to our sacred texts and find such deep, powerful meaning in, in it. Yeah, I, I, I'm actually really relieved because yeah. that, that you might say that too. Because I, I when I look back now, and I think I, I must have been reading the Bible with just a single view. Mm. You know, how did I miss all the stuff that's mm. there that that is so culturally diverse that does focus on um, on unity and diversity, but also on welcoming the stranger, on us, us us being one together and being a gift to one another. You know, and I just I think. When you have a certain mindset, you read and you just obscure all the others. You you miss, and when it's going back and reading, that you that you then go, hang on, how, how did I overlook that? How did my mm. worldview become so constrained? And what I, the thing I, I went on, as I said in the last podcast, I went on a bit of an odyssey through different denominations because I was uncomfortable with um, some of the answers. They didn't fit for me with the sort of liberating, life giving sense of God I had and the one question well I had two I had one about gender the other one was about interfaith issues the way I would always ask it I'd get to the point of thinking right I can't make this fit anymore and I would say to the the leader in the in the church community okay we've got you know I grew up um in a Christian home I've I may have gone away for a while but I've grown up and I'm a practicing adult Christian now you know now if I had been born um to a Muslim family I would have been brought up as a Muslim and I, you know, whether I'd gone away for a while, but the chances are I would have been brought, continued as a practicing Muslim. Can you honestly tell me that this God you worship, that we're worshipping, that we say is a God of love, would condemn me to hell for that? I can't make this fit. You know, you cannot say God is a God of love and then tell me that. And it was always the, it was one of the moving on questions for me because, you know, it, it, it just couldn't be made to sit at all comfortably with the God we were proclaiming. And, and, and that was, it mm-hmm. was a showstopper. Mm-hmm. Well, the, there's that uh, often quoted verse about Jesus saying he is the truth. And, and I think that's often interpreted to mean... Um, Way the truth and life. Yeah, the, the, mm-hmm. the, that it's an absolute truth and that he's specifically talking about the Christian faith is the absolute truth. Um, and, and I'm sure there's similar interpretations of mm-hmm. verses in the Quran mm-hmm. as well, uh, Nora. Yeah. And, and one of them, uh, and we can get technical here with the definition, is the fact that I've now perfected, so God says in the Quran, I've now perfected your um, deen, your religion for you, and it's Islam. Now, we can argue the technical definition of what Islam means. Does it mean necessarily, you know, all these different um, aspects of creed, like the pillars and articles of faith? Or is it Islam, which simply means to surrender to God? Mm -hmm. So one who surrenders to God 
is the perfect uh, devotee um, or offering their devotion to God. And I'd like to think that that's what it means. It means somebody who is surrendering to God has now accepted, you know, um, God's message um, in, in this world. Mm. And for me, as a, as, a, as a Christian, going back to the, to the, the, the Gospels um, and, and encountering Jesus again in the Gospels in the light of these experiences helps me to see things, as Sue was saying, that, um, that were there all along that I didn't see. And when you approach the Gospels with new eyes as a Christian, you actually see that Jesus is much more open to people of other faith than Christians are, you know. So you know, so Jesus is uh, only says two people were people of great faith, and neither of them were Jews. Mm. So here's Jesus as a Jew, never saying to about another Jew that they had great faith, but it, the two people that he said had great faith were a Roman centurion and a Syrophoenician woman, and he was able to see beyond his tradition and see uh, real faith in God outside of it. And, of course, the great story um, of Jesus about the Good Samaritan was that Jesus actually saw the Samaritan that most Jews saw as heretics as a paragon of virtue, an example of godliness. And the, and the, the message of that story of the Good Samaritan is not that just we should help people or we should help people of other traditions, but we should be humble enough to learn from people of other traditions of what it means to be truly godly. Because Jesus turns around and says to all his Jewish disciples, you need to be like the Samaritan. Mm. So Jesus not only acknowledged people's great faith from other traditions, but he was able to um, say to his disciples that they should be like great examples of a faith in other traditions. Now, that's there in the Gospels. It's been there all along. Mm. Right, but we ha we haven't we've been blinded by our Christian ideology, yes, yes. so we have not been sensitive to that open, responsive, inclusive spirituality that was embodied in the great prophets like Jesus. And I think the way, the truth, and the life that that is often used as a bit of a hammer, you know, in in this kind of discussion, it's the one that's brought up all the time. That mm. verse from the Gospel of John, you know, when you actually read the context, read the rest of that chapter. Um, this one I, I think I've got from Brian McLaren, the way he, he, he says, well, it's, it's, it's a horror that we have ignored the rest of that chapter. We have taken that verse out of context. And in, in that chapter, um, Jesus says, um, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So what he is describing as being Jesus as the way, the truth and life, what is the way and truth of Jesus? Well, he practices nonviolence, he practices inclusion, hospitality, you know, he, he practices peace and compassionate, extraordinary love. Not religious bigotry. That not, mm. Yes, he wasn't saying if you get your doctrine right, this is the way. That's not what he was saying. If you've seen the Father, you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Can I also just pick up on, on this very important uh, point of, of Jesus? Now, in one of our, as a Muslim, I have to believe in, in Jesus and, and, and um, uh, you know, to deny um, who he is would be um, considered part of, part of um, denying part of, part of Islam. So every Muslim will tell you that they believe in Jesus as, as a divinely inspired prophet, one of a long line of, of all the great prophets. But we don't go beyond that because it's almost seen to be like we're now um, dwelling or, or, or entering, you know, Christendom if we try to get to know Jesus beyond the fact that he is a prophet and that, you know. And so for so long, like people would ask me, do you believe in Jesus? And even in the early conversations uh, after 9-11, of course, I have to believe in Jesus. Like I'm a Muslim. It's part of my, my faith, my creed. But I never knew what that meant. And even in a conversation that we had at another, um, I think it was the same Pentecostal church, and they asked me that exact question. And I said, yes, I'm, you know, a Jesus-loving, um, following Muslim. And I think that didn't go down well because I don't know. Obviously, their understanding of it would be completely different from mine. But I never really knew what that meant to say that I follow and love Jesus. And I think a few months later, Dave told me that he was, you know, writing a series of, of books on the Plan B. 
and asked, and they were published, and he asked me to read them. On the Beatitudes. On the Beatitudes. And um, so we had great conversation about that. And I remember just devouring those books, but at the same time finding it very difficult because it made me reflect on what it meant to be a Jesus-loving and following Muslim. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Now, Jesus is mentioned more times in the Quran than Muhammad. Um, I know that, again, reading, you know, the, the Quran from cover to cover from a very young age, there's a whole chapter in the Quran um, called Mary, all, you know, dedicated to her, no one, you know, and yet um, I didn't want to touch or know too much about Jesus because that's Jesus is part of Christianity. Like, I, I didn't go there. I knew I had to acknowledge and recognize his, his place within Islam and his place within the creation and, and divinely inspired, you know, prophethood of, uh, under God. And that he brought the the uh, Gospels. We have to believe in the Injil, the Gospels. But I didn't go beyond that. I didn't research it because that was going into Christianity. And it was just so uplifting and, and, and really... Um, quite a weight off my shoulder when I actually read everything um, about Jesus and, and getting to know Jesus for the first time and being so moved by the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, that I immediately went online and, you know, printed it out and it's on my fridge. And it's now the framework for how I engage community, how I engage service. And so I can confidently say that I am a Jesus-following and, and loving Muslim, but it took a Christian um, who I wanted to avoid like the plague, you know, 10 years ago to get me to that stage because I was too scared to go there. Um, and yet, you know, I'm constantly reminded every single day, and I say in the name of God, the most gracious, the most compassionate every single day. And it's just been you know, affirmed over and over. And every time I read more about Jesus and every time I'm not scared to go there anymore, mm. um, whereas I was before. And I think that's what happens sometimes when we're so, or we feel very, like we have to put ourselves within one position, mm. one faith position, and not be open to learning about others. Um, I do say that I have surrendered myself more fully because I've had a co great conversation with a Christian. But I think that that an important part of that process, Nora, was the fact that um, when we talked about Jesus, we didn't make Jesus and Christianity synonymous. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the trouble is when if you talk to a lot of Christians, they will say you have to become a Christian to relate to Jesus. Yes. Whereas uh, what we've tried to do is liberate Jesus yeah. from Christianity yes. and say that Christians don't have a monopoly on Jesus, mm. yeah. that both Christians and Muslims believe Jesus is the Messiah or the Messiah. Mm. He's the great example, uh, the, um, the Kalimatullah. Yeah. And, and um, I think that made it possible for you to engage Jesus more fully Definitely. because it was really clear that it, it wasn't a prerequisite for you to become a Christian to relate to Jesus. Mm that mm. you could relate to Jesus mm. in your tradition more fully, more faithfully, and more meaningfully. And um, that would be my hope, that the Christians would liberate Jesus from Christianity mm -hmm. and recognise that Jesus um, is, is, is the greatest uh, example of uh, Judaism. Uh, he's he's, the, um, he's the, the saviour for Christians. He's the prophet for Muslims. Mm -hmm. and, and together we can be open to his inspiration from, from different religious traditions. Dave, can I, can I just ask, it's fascinating hearing, Nora, about what you've learnt from the Christian tradition. But Dave, I'd love to know, what have you learnt from the Islamic tradition? I mean, if you could pick a, one or two things, what, what have you learnt along the journey with Nora? Well, I think there's many things. Um, uh, I believe that uh, many of my Muslim friends are, are genuinely godly people. And um, I find being with them nurtures my faith in God deeply and profoundly. Um, I believe that um, the pillars of Islam are, are disciplines, spiritual disciplines. And I believe that um, God has brought Muslims to our country to help us recover some of our spiritual disciplines. So uh, one of those disciplines is prayer and fasting and Ramadan. And so uh, for many years I've, I've practiced uh, Ramadan with my Muslim friends. 
And um, uh, my latest book actually is about <laughs> reflections on Ramadan. So that is something that, that's been really significant to me in terms of restoring spiritual disciplines. But I would say the most significant thing is the Bismillah. Um, uh, when I talked to Nora about what she thought was the heart of Islam, she said the Bismillah. And I said, what's that? And she said, um, it's an Arabic phrase, Bismillah ar-Rahim, that is at the introduction of every surah or chapter of the Quran, except one. And, and it, it means, in the name of God, the most merciful and compassionate. And the phrase sounds beautiful in Arabic. Uh, it's, it's resonant with meaning. Um, the, the word uh, Rahman and Rahim both derive from the Arabic Raham, which is word for womb. It's like it's, 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 uh, it's a call to enter into an understanding and experience and appreciation of the, the womb of God that nurtures us and sustains us. And um, uh, so... I believe it's Bismillah spirituality that has been really nourishing for my soul. And um, I am profoundly grateful for that. And let me say that even more than the text uh, uh, from the Quran, it's the embodied text in the life of my Muslim friends who actually incarnate the mercy and grace of God in their lives uh, that I've found truly inspiring. Mm. Yeah, that's great. I love and, that. And um, if, if I can just say one thing about that, I mean, again, the going back to the text in light of all these conversations, um, the Quran says specifically to Muslims that Christians are the closest to you in affection um, and that there's a lot to learn from them. Um, and that they're actually role models for you in faith um, because of their love and service. And again, reading it over and over, but it's just actually hitting home um, in my conversations with different Christians that Dave has introduced me to over the last 10 years. Um, what's really exciting is that there is great scholarship out there at the moment looking at the Prophet Muhammad's uh, covenant with Christians. They've actually been in churches um, for the last um, couple of, you know, 1,400 years, nearly 500 years. And these were covenants that he made with specific Christians. Uh, one Najran, which is South uh, Saudi Arabia at that time, South Arabia. Another one was with the monastery, St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai, and as well as two others. And he had promised to ensure love, that the love and affection continued between Muslims and Christians. So this is seventh century that we don't hear about. Um, and it's only coming to light that, you know, all places of worship were to be protected, um, that Christians were to be protected um, and to be, you know, treated with respect and care and compassion because they are people of God. Um, now, these have been, you know, uh, accepted by the different monasteries and churches um, which made this um, covenant with with Prophet Muhammad and Muslims at that time, and it's only come to light in the last decade. And so there's a lot of research about it going, well, actually, the position of, of you know, relationship between Christians and Muslims are went, meant to be one of deep love and affection, as the Quran has said, and it's actually practically not in terms of just rhetoric that's, you know, dogma within the Quran, but it was actually in practice. So I'm really excited about this because I think that this will showcase um, and hopefully demonstrate that it was there all along and that we were just so caught up in this right and wrong, us and them dichotomy um, and, you know, not allowing that that compassion, you know, where you put your ego aside, where you simply say, well, I'm not actually more right than you, you know. But, but Nora, I mean, in saying that, it is so hard, I imagine, for mm. you, uh, despite the fact how fully you believe all of this. Uh, I can't even comprehend how difficult it must be to live in a Western culture right now, which is uh, apparently intent on demonizing Islam and demonizing Muslims. Um, uh, 
I'm interested to know, buying into that sense of that dualism of, of the othering, of the scapegoating of Muslims and the Islamic faith at the moment, there are so many myths, so many untruths out there, so many misconceptions that are just fully believed. Um, is it exhausting sometimes being on the end of all of this? Do you sometimes feel like, like no progress is being made on actually being able to humanise your faith and humanise uh, people who hold that faith? Absolutely. <laughs> um, there, in recent times, um, one of the latest incidents um, was what happened in England. And I remember driving to work um, along, you know, Logan Central and just stopping the car because I had ABC radio on, stopping the car and just sobbing because I thought, oh, going back, you know, we, we make, you know, we do so much to try to humanize and to provide that human face to a Muslim and to Islam. And then this just, you know, counters all of that. But at the same time, it brings me back to the fence story. Yeah. So every time I feel like burying my head, I remember people like Dave and the beautiful Christians I've met along the way who will hold my hand through this process. I remember my neighbor's defense, which really keeps me inspired to do what I do. And I tell myself that the it's the same with Muslims and Christians on the far right, that their, vo- their voices are very loud. But I really really believe that we everyone else are people that just need to be reached out to um and that need to be engaged in um and it's you know we've we've had many many incidents along the way one of the one of the best incidents along the way um that we've been able to work together on at the very last minute was just after the martin um martin um place uh siege and within a matter of really two days, we got together and said, how are, we going, how are we going to respond? We've been doing this, you know, around the country, but how are we going to respond as a community? When Muslims were scapegoated yep. in reaction to the marketplace. Yeah, mm. so um, maybe I'll let you tell the story. Yeah. Well, it's um, so the so a number of our dear uh, a number of our dear yeah. Muslim friends were being attacked, particularly yeah. Muslim women who are both visible mm. and vulnerable because of their gender, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we talked about it and said, how can we deal with this kind of renewed onslaught of attacks, actually physical, literal attacks, mm. uh, where people were uh, being. Um, strangled with their hijabs or, or people reaching out with lighters trying to light their hijabs and coffee um, hot coffee thrown at them yes and you know a whole lot of abuse um and and we said we've got to find some way of standing in solidarity against uh 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 this divisive scapegoating and so uh, we said well why don't we see if we can get some christian leaders will publicly stand with Muslims mm-hmm. by turning up at the Karabi Mosque and and making a statement that we stand by uh, our Muslim brothers and sisters and then an attack on mm-hmm. one faith is an attack on all faiths because we share this common commitment to freedom of religion. Um, and so uh, I began to contact some of our, our, our Christian friends who we had got to know and got to work with in the preceding years and slowly developed trust with so that in the middle of this crisis we could call on them and we invited them to come and about 30 christian leaders from a whole range of christian different denominations came to the karabi mosque many of them had never been to a mosque before so for them it was a huge step for them to publicly associate with muslims to stand together with uh, the Muslim community at the mosque, but they did so strongly, clearly, loudly. And um, I think for the Muslim community, it was just really profound, really meaningful. In fact, I I talked to people there who were just crying, just saying, you know, in the face of this constant litany of abuse, um, just to have other people of faith publicly stand with us is a way of breaking that cycle, of changing mm. the d- direction of that cycle from ever in, uh, decreasing 
uh, respect to ever-increasing levels mm. of respect. It breaks that dichotomy mm. of us and them. Mm. It breaks that cycle. But that demonstration of solidarity um, keeps Muslims yes. going. Yeah. They remember that. They remember because the Caribbean Mosque was the first mosque that was burnt down anywhere around the world after 9-11. Um, and um, they 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 did catch the arsonist, and he was actually forgiven. The Muslim Caribbean Muslim community said, "We don't actually want him um, punished. We'd rather have a dialogue with him to understand why he engaged in the act of arson." And it's exactly what they did. Um, but that demonstration, but that, but yeah. that story mm. has not been told. No. no. No, you because know, that's, not the re- that's not the representation no. of Islam. No, that's again. right. I mean, it's a fantastic Vengeful, story. You know. <laughs> the mosque was burnt down. They fa- found out who had burnt it down. Mm. Instead of seeking vengeance, they extended forgiveness. They mm. reached out. Uh, beautiful story. And mm. what was even also beautiful mm. is other representatives from other church other, communities yeah, said, yeah. you can use our yep. church halls to pray mm. while yep. you're rebuilding your mosque. Yep. Now, if you ever want um, a great... Aussie example of really godly Muslims and godly Christians responding to each other in the midst of this conflict. That is it. That is it. The trouble is, it's an untold story. All you hear is these crazy people yelling and screaming at each other. You just don't hear these gentle voices of goodwill. And, uh, you know, the wonderful thing is that that story is a viable mm. alternative to the narratives that we hear. Together we we can respond to these horrific incidents, whether here or internationally, that together we can grieve. You know, we can grieve at the loss of life, we can grieve at the violence out there, um, and that we can heal together yeah. uh, rather than, than separately. So that's what keeps me going when I pull, you know, side to the road and have a bit of a cry and I'll call my friends and we'll have a cry together. Um, but it's incidents like that, it's people that I've met along the way that keep me going. I'm so, so profoundly relieved to hear these stories as well because, you know, Nora, when you were talking about and saying that, that Christians can be models of compassion for Islam, I was just feeling profoundly ashamed mm. thinking of the other experiences you'd had, all those experiences where people were just trying to convert you or just trying to tell you what your religion was about with knowing nothing themselves. And I'm, I'm so profoundly grateful that you persevered despite that earlier experience because and and that we can hear stories like this that are such an alternate narrative that are to to what is in in the news you know an alternative narrative where we can stand together because for goodness sake we we we, have such natural natural allies when it comes to compassionate love hospitality you know social justice social justice you know and um to be able to work together and for for you know for you to even be able to say with a straight face that Christians could be models of compassion after all you have been through is remarkable, you know, and so I, gracious. I was talking to an, uh, um, an imam, a Jamal, Jamal Rahman, um, from Bangladesh after the Paris bombings, and uh, we were having a coffee together, and we were just painfully aware of just how um, deeply the Christians and Muslims were hurting each other. Um, and because uh, those bombings didn't ha- happen in a vacuum, they happened in the light of you know our invasions of Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. Um, so there was violence being perpetrated on both sides, and it was. And I said to um, Jamal, "How do you respond um, at a time like this to people of other traditions and religions? How do you reach out to them across the divide?" And he said. I have one question that I ask everybody that I meet. Um, as a Muslim, this is the question I ask non-Muslims. And I said, what, so what's that question, Jamal? And he says, the question I ask is, how can I help heal the hurt that we have caused one another? Mm. And I said, Jamal, that is the question. That is the critical issue for all of us who believe in the mercy and grace of God. When we meet one another, that is the question we should be asking. Mm. How can I heal the hurt that we have caused one another? That is the way forward. That, asking that question and answering that question. I, I, I was hesitant to ask this question, but I do want to ask it. At the, I don't want to make it a scapegoating question, but instead I want to 
I want to use someone like Pauline Hanson as a symbol of a feeling that is held throughout areas of the country in the Western world um, of exclusion, of othering, of scapegoating. And I, I want to ask you both separately, uh, if you had five minutes one-on-one with Pauline Hanson, Nora, firstly, what would you say to... Uh, and and we'll just use her as, I guess, the symbol of this, uh, this feeling, this opinion. What would you say? I've, um, we've actually extended an invitation to Pauline Hanson a number of times, different Muslim organizations. Um, so we have wanted to reach out to her because what we recognize is what she's saying um, is uh, obviously very troubling um, because she does have a population um, that, you know, see her as, as their, you know, the, the one who's not afraid to tackle some of these I- issues, especially with regards to Islam and, and terrorism. And, the, and what's concerning for us is that um, there was actually a report saying that not only is she a model here within Australia, but she's seen to be a role model within the far right um, and the white supremacist groups in the US. Uh, they're holding Trump and Pauline Hansen as their you know, heroes of the world who's not afraid to, to tackle Islam and terrorism. My first Thing is really to ask her and to have a conversation. Well, actually, I just want to talk to her. I want to relate to her as a woman. I want to relate to her as a mother. And I want to, I guess, get really deep down as to why she has these sentiments, anti-Islam and anti-Muslim sentiments. And I think from there, I'll be able to have that conversation with her. Well, this is how Islam informs my life. So I want her to hear the beauty that it provides me. I want her to hear how, you know, prayer sustains me spiritually. Um, how, you know, fasting has, has made me, I, I believe, not only disciplined, but more compassionate and empathetic for some of the world's poor. How charity for me is such a cherished part of, of my faith, you know, um, and, and concepts of social justice. So beyond all the headlines and little snippets that she feels that she's learning about Islam or somebody's experience, and not to um, be apologetic about some of the gross violations of human rights around the world. Let's, Let's not shy away from that. But for Islam to inform the, you know, um, 1.6 billion people around the world, there's a reason why it sustains them. And I want her to actually hear that story from me as Mm. a Muslim. I I find that so interesting in your uh, fence-building story that uh, the the most pivotal part, I think, is that your neighbours got to know you as a human before they knew you as a a Muslim. Um, And and I, I think that is probably key. Dave, what would you say to Pauline Hanson if you had five minutes with her? What would you want to discuss? Like Noura, I think uh, we wouldn't start with saying something. We'd start with listening. Because I think the the problem is that we talk at each other. um, And I think we need to understand one another. And uh, uh, that's where I'd start, with trying to listen. Um, if, If she talked about why she was anti, anti-Islam, my hunch is that we would probably agree with 90% of the reason why she's anti-Islam, because it's based on a misunderstanding <laughs> of Islam that we could agree with. We, we could agree that that kind of Islam is something we don't agree with either. And, um, and if we could go with her on that journey of saying, what's the Islam you don't believe in? My guess is that most of the Islam she doesn't believe in is Islam we don't believe in either. And, and so rather than coming from a, an aggressive, reactive um, space, I think there's, there would be a lot of common ground and hopefully then we could move on to a deeper, more human engagement. I mean, if you listen to Sa- Senator Jackie Lambie, for example, you know, what she critiques about Sharia, I mean, we would critique it too. If that's what Sharia was, then we would oppose it too. You know what I mean? And most Muslims would oppose it as well. Um, So um, I think rather than react and get into an aggressive exchange, I think our posture would be to to listen, to try to understand why why they think what they do and feel what they do, and then look for opportunities to find some kind of 
commonality in which we could journey together in a, to a deeper understanding. And Nora's saying for her, that's in terms of her being a woman, being a mother, and so on. And I, th I think there's an incredible power in, in what you are saying, how you would approach that, because it, it's about fear, isn't it? I think this is, we're, we're living in a time when uh, the greatest enemy is really fear. And to be able, and that's why I love the fence story, because this is about the only thing. I don't think facts disable fear. No, I don't, don't think, don't. you know, giving more information disables fear at all. The only thing really that truly disables fear is relationship and really seeing one another and getting to know one another as human beings. And when that happens, then the walls come down and all the fences don't go up, you know. And, and the, being able to have these dialogues and, and actually having the opportunity for a dialogue would be so welcome with some of those who were helping to, to keep the fear going, you know, because the chance to build relationships and to help people recognise that we can just, just being human is the way to, to de-escalate de it. The Jews did some research after the Second World War on the uh, Gentiles that, that protected Jews during the Holocaust, and they discovered there, there were three distinctive characteristics of what they called righteous Gentiles, who actually protected Jews in the Holocaust. And the three things were, first of all, uh, they were nurtured with families who had a, a sense of empathy for the other. Secondly, that they were schooled um, in institutions like churches or uh, colleges and so on that nurtured a, uh, an understanding of um, righteousness as a commitment to the rights of the others as much as yourself. So you had an emotional intelligence and an intellectual intelligence that was com committed to empathy and to, uh, to uh, expressing that love and justice. But the third thing that all of them had in common was they actually knew a Jew themselves, that they actually, uh, the, the Jews were their neighbours or they were friends or they were relatives. And it was those three factors that made all the difference. And so we really believe encouraging empathy, um, giving clarity about um, a commitment to the rights of all people, and not just to ourselves, but to others, and developing personal relationships uh, with one another is going to be the decisive factor. I was going to ask what a what an interfaith community looks like, but I think you've just perfectly described it right there. Um, I, I do want to read out this quote of yours, Nora, that I did find while I was doing some research. Um, you said, I've been involved in interfaith work for 18 years now, and one thing I've learned along this journey is that in order to build genuine coexistence, interfaith must go beyond merely speaking politely to one another or simply learning about one another's faith. It must involve compassion. Compassion is a higher consciousness humanizing the other. It is truly wanting for our brothers and sisters what we would want for ourselves. And I think that pretty beautifully sums this up. Amen. Um, thank you so much, Dave. Amen. Thank you so much, Nora. Thank you uh, so thank much, you. Sue. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Wonderful conversation. And we'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast soon.